welcome to DLA Piper's Better Contracts podcast series. My name is Chloe Forster, a partner in the commercial contracts team based in London at global business law firm DLA Piper. Welcome to today's episode in which I, together with my colleagues Diego Ramos, commercial contracts partner in our Madrid office, and Nick Boyle, commercial contracts partner in our Sydney office, will be exploring the topic of strength of contractual obligations and the meaning of certain commonly used drafting terms in our different jurisdictions. Often, when we're in the depths of negotiations trying to agree ways forward, we can use terms like reasonable efforts to do something or seek to oblige a party to do something in good faith. But when doing so, it's really important to pause and think about what those terms actually mean and the effect that they'll have on the enforceability of the end contract. It's actually a really broad subject, so to guide us through it, we'll be focusing on four key areas. Firstly, the meaning of best and reasonable efforts or endeavours and other similar terms. Secondly, the relevance of good faith obligations and how this differs between common and civil law jurisdictions. Thirdly, the concepts of obligations of means and obligations of results. And finally, the use of letters of intent or memorandums of understanding. So without further ado, let's get started. So first up, let's explore the use and meaning of best and reasonable endeavours and other similar terms which are often used in drafting to water down or lessen the impact of an absolute obligation. I think it's fair to say that these terms originate from and are more frequently used in common law jurisdictions. So Nick, let's start with you. Perhaps you could explain for us a little more about what these terms mean in Australia. Thanks, Chloe. Absolute obligations are those that are commitments that are breached if the outcome is not achieved. So it's very much a binary assessment and a binary outcome as to whether or not an absolute obligation is complied with. As you mentioned, in Australia, it's very common that many contractual obligations and commitments are not in fact absolute, but are rather conditioned by some form of additional language that requires a certain standard of effort to be applied in seeking to achieve a particular outcome. That approach reflects the fact that in practice, there are lots of things that are outside of a party's control, and therefore it's not the outcome as such, but the effort that goes into trying to achieve an outcome that is really important. So from an Australian context, there are really a a range of different phrases that are used to try and convey what these different efforts or endeavours standards are. Just a few of these are phrases like best efforts, reasonable efforts, commercially reasonable efforts, commercial best efforts, and even all reasonable endeavours or all reasonable efforts. And in Australia, it's interesting because today courts have generally interpreted all of these phrases as being pretty much synonymous and having pretty much the same meaning and effect. I think, Chloe, that the position in the UK is a little different and you might be able to talk us through that in a moment. But before you do, I I wanted to note that in an Australian context, it's pretty important uh, that the courts have recognised that where an obligation is conditioned by the phrase reasonable endeavours or one of those similar phrases, that really the nature and the extent of the obligation is necessarily conditioned by what is reasonable in the circumstances. And that includes the particular party's own business interests. An obligation to use reasonable efforts or reasonable endeavours doesn't require the obligated party to put the other party's interests ahead of its own. That's a really important thing to remember. And secondly, the other thing that's important to note when you're trying to understand what does reasonable efforts mean is that the courts have recognised that parties can include in a contract their own internal standard of what is reasonable or what is a a commercially best effort. 
including some express references about their particular business interests. And in Australia, we often see contracts include language that seeks to define what the relevant standard of performance is by reference to different economic, commercial and operational factors. Thanks, Nick. That's really interesting because, as you say, it's similar over here in the UK, but there are certainly some nuances. The concepts and particularly the meaning of the term or reasonable endeavours were actually explored quite recently by the High Court in 2021, which help us to provide the following definitions under English law. Reasonable endeavours might mean if one reasonable path is taken, then the obligation is actually discharged. Whereas all reasonable endeavours might normally require all reasonable paths to be exhausted. So there's a difference there in terms of how many different things or the quantity of outcomes that you'd have to explore. Finally, best endeavours are more likely to require the sacrifice of commercial interests. So what is or is not reasonable is dependent on the likelihood of achieving the desired outcome. And so in the case of all reasonable endeavours, it's unlikely to require a party to sacrifice its own commercial interests. But the judge did actually note that this was context dependent and so may not always be the case. So where does that leave us? Well, from an English law perspective, I'd recommend only using these terms when there's no other way of phrasing the obligation, as actually they're still fundamentally uncertain and can be very subjective or context dependent. If they can't be avoided, think about whether you can create some certainty through a minimum set of expectations and whether there's anything you can carve out of the term and actually make it clear and specific in the drafting. So Diego, over to you now. As we've said, my understanding is that this is largely a common law construct. Has it made its way into Spanish law? Thanks, Claude. Well, the most accurate answer is probably to say that not yet, at least. It's true that some Spanish legal authors are claiming that since these legal concepts came from the common law world, the legal consequences should be exactly the same ones. But this is not the majority position to date. Spanish courts still focus on exploring carefully the party's will. If, for example, a party uh, that could have uh, agreed to attend an event personally finally decides to agree only to make best efforts to arrive, this must have been for a good reason. Or at least this is what the Spanish courts think. Okay? Well, it is true that when saying that you are going to make your best efforts to attend that event, you are probably under a moral or social duty. But at least in Spain, the courts think that you should not be tied by an enforceable legal obligation. This may eventually lead to a very amazing situation. When a party finally decides, in the example that I put forward, to attend the event, that party cannot try to reverse his or her performance. What the Spanish courts say is that, well, the binding force of this obligation to attend would not arise from the document you sign 
saying that you are going to make your best efforts to attend, but rather from the factual demonstration that you attended the event. In other words, that you felt to be legally bound and that you were under a sort of so-called natural obligation, which means that you are not legally obliged to perform and to attend the event that we have put as an example, that if you do not attend, you cannot be uh, obliged by means of, of court enforcement to do so, but if you finally decide to do so, that's all right, and you cannot ask a court to support your petition to cancel performance or to reverse it. Thanks, Diego. I think that's a really fascinating explanation of the differences between our jurisdictions. And I think that brings us on really nicely to the concept of good faith, where again, the differences between civil and common law jurisdictions are stark. Dear, sorry to come back to you again so quickly, but perhaps you could start by explaining how obligations of good faith are treated in Spain. Of course, yes. Great pleasure for me, Chloe. Well, good faith is actually very relevant in the context of Spanish civil and commercial law. Article 1258 of the Spanish Civil Code states that once a contract has been entered into by the parties, it obliged parties to comply not just with whatever covenants they have agreed on, but also to comply with all other obligations that, as a result of this contract, would be naturally triggered by either good faith, local trade customs, or by the law. It is for me, a bit surprising that a best efforts obligation that had been explicitly assumed in a written agreement is not enforceable in Spain, but that these obligations generated by this, let me say, general and implied good faith principle are 100% enforceable. In the example that we have just discussed before, the party that uh, finally doesn't uh, attend the public event would be not obliged to attend and could not be uh, obliged to attend the event, but would probably be obliged on the Spanish good faith principle to phone the organizer announcing that he or she would finally not be able to attend so that the organizer could seek some alternatives. And in case he or she is not calling to announce the, the no-show, uh, well, some liabilities could arise for having missed this good faith principle. Good faith plays also an additional and very important role, in my view, in Spanish law. There are many scenarios uh, analyzed by the Spanish Civil Code where different legal consequences are drawn depending on whether a party was acting in good faith or not. There are many examples of, of this. Let me mention just a few. Liability for willful misconduct, which obviously excludes good faith uh, entirely, cannot be excluded. 
good faith acquirers of goods prevail over prior acquirers that were nevertheless knowing that the seller was not really entitled to sell the goods, and so on. So good faith plays a very important role in Spanish obligations law. I think it's really important for our clients who act across multiple jurisdictions to note, Diego. And actually, I understand that there is also a codified duty of good faith in a number of other European countries. By contrast, however, under English law, there's no general doctrine of good faith, although it can still affect a contract in three ways. Firstly, where it's expressly agreed by parties in the contract, which is probably the most common. Secondly, where it's implied by the courts, for example, in relational contracts, as discussed extensively in recent years in relation to Bates versus the Post Office and other cases too, where to establish that a contract is a relational one, you'd need to look at certain factors, including the length of the relationship, the degree of costs and cross-investment, the level of close collaboration, and whether or not the relationship is an exclusive one. The final example of where good faith might affect a contract is the Braganza duty, where in the absence of clear language to the contrary, an obligation is implied that requires contractual provisions providing for a right to exercise some form of discretion to be exercised in a rational way and in good faith. But I I do think it's worth noting that in the case of the latter two, the circumstances in which they will apply are very limited and the law in relation to the implied duties of good faith particularly has not yet reached a stage of settled clarity. As such, by far the most common example is where it's drafted into the contract by the parties, which then gives rise, of course, to the question, well, what does this mean? The definition that's generally accepted in law is that it has to be aware that it has four different limbs. So firstly, adherence to the spirit of the contract, then observing a reasonable commercial standard of fair dealing. Thirdly, being faithful to an agreed common purpose. And finally, acting consistently with the justified expectations of the other party. So Nick, perhaps I could hand over to you now. Where does Australia fit into this spectrum? Thanks, Chloe. And it's really interesting to hear that the position's not that settled in the UK because that's very much similar to what we've got in Australia at the moment. So there's been a number of cases in Australia at a state Supreme Court and also in the federal court level over really kind of the last 20 or 30 years that have considered whether or not there is an implied contractual duty to act in good faith. But the issue has never been determined definitively by the High Court of Australia. And so there's a bit of uncertainty because different courts have adopted different approaches and we're still in somewhat of a state of flux. That uncertainty has also flowed through into what is the content of that duty of good faith to the extent that it even exists. So even in that ex- to that extent, we're uncertain about what uh, an obligation to act in good faith actually requires of the parties. Now, having said that, the courts have been more willing to recognise implied obligations or duties to act in good faith in certain types of contracts. And there's some examples where a government entity is a party to a a contract perhaps as part of a procurement process and has behaved in a particular way. And in some of those circumstances, the courts have been more willing to acknowledge that the government itself is bound by an obligation to act in good faith. And Hughes Aircraft Systems International and Air Services Australia is a, a pretty good example of that. But if you're not talking about a government contract, then really the better view at the moment is that 
at this stage, it's really a matter of the individual contracting question and an analysis of that as to whether or not there may be an obligation to act in good faith in the exercise of contractual rights or discretions. Um, parties will sometimes expressly agree that they are bound by an obligation to act in good faith, as you've said, Chloe, and that's probably the clearest cut uh, example where um, that's called out. But there's also some statutory obligations to act in good faith. So, for example, under the Franchising Code of Conduct, uh, there's an implied or rather an express obligation on the parties to a franchising agreement to act towards one another in good faith. So there has been a recognition of those obligations in some statutory regimes. Uh, as I said, you know, with that level of uncertainty about whether or not there is an obligation to act in good faith, we don't have much certainty about what is the content of that duty. Although in 2017, a recent court decision said that good faith goes to the quality of the conduct of the parties. That is to discern whether the conduct was capricious, dishonest, unconscionable, arbitrary, or the product of a motive which was antithetical to the object of contractual power. Conduct attended by any of those qualities could never said to be in good faith. Um, consideration of the relevant conduct within these confines informs the question whether or not the power has been exercised in good faith. And I, I think what I really draw from that as being pretty interesting is that you can sort of identify good faith almost as the absence of bad faith because it's easier to identify, you know, what is bad faith conduct. It's much more difficult to say what is good faith. Yeah, it's really interesting that that's the angle that the Australian courts have taken when trying to define good faith in the in the absence of any statutory definition of it. So thanks, Nick. Moving on to our third topic, Diego, perhaps you could explain to us the concept of obligations of means versus obligations of results. Sure, with pleasure, Claire. Well, fortunately for me, these two categories are well regulated in Spain. As part of the so-called doing obligations contained in Article 1099 of the Spanish Civil Code and the following ones. Well, the concept in principle is simple. In the obligations of results, the debtor commits to a result. Should the result not be achieved, then the debtor would be in breach, except perhaps in a false major scenario. And conversely, in the obligations of means, the debtor is compliant as far as he or she renders, for example, a service sticking to a reasonable diligence standard. The typical example of the first category in the Spanish market is a contract where what a party shall deliver a birthday cake, whilst the second one would be rather the delivery of medical treatment by a doctor. These reasonable diligence standard that I have mentioned before gives a good hint on how to differentiate in Spain best effort duties from obligations of means that look uh, out very, very similar, actually. In the case of obligations of means, there is almost always a so-called lex artis, 
a specific professional diligence standard present. This is the case of the doctor, for example. In the case of best efforts or best endeavors, duties, compliance is rather linked to convenience, opportunity, effort, something that goes beyond and is different from this professional or business diligence standard. Thanks, Diego. Maybe, Chloe, I can just quickly jump in from an Australian perspective. And really, that sort of terminology isn't ordinarily used in an Australian context, but having just listened to Diego, it kind of aligns with what we were talking about earlier in terms of the distinction between absolute obligations and obligations to use reasonable efforts. Really, you know, an absolute obligation sounds very much like an obligation of results since they're either achieved or not. And an obligation of means really seems to align with an, an obligation to use reasonable efforts because it's about what standard of performance you use in, in trying to achieve an outcome. Yeah, I agree. I think the approach here in the UK is very much the same as Australia, but certainly those parallels that you draw out, Nick, really do resonate. And so moving on to our final topic, we wanted to briefly explore letters of intent and memorandums of understanding. So under English law, these are very much commercial constructions and often used where the parties want to provide some level of commitment or commercial cover, but the precise details of the engagement are not yet known. In terms of enforceability, however, they're addressed like any other contractual document, which is why we often see parties explicitly identifying within the provisions which ones are likely to be legally binding or which ones are not. Nick, how are these documents treated in Australia? Yeah, thanks, Chloe. And your summary there of, you know, it being really a commercial construct and the parties seeking to give a fair bit of detail within these types of documents, whether or not they are legally binding, is very much consistent with the approach that you see in Australia. So you can have a letter of intent or a memorandum of understanding or a term sheet that is intended to be binding, or you can have one where it's not intended to be binding. And one of the important things to think about is if you do want one of these arrangements to be binding, you also need to ensure that it contains all the essential terms. Because even if you have an intention to be bound, if the agreement is is lacking an essential term that means that it doesn't sort of include all of the terms that are required for the parties to reach a concluded agreement, then that's not enough to save it. You, you need to have all those terms included as well. So as you said, Chloe, you'll often see parties agree these sorts of documents really as a means of recording sort of a moral obligation or a commercial commitment around kind of key principles, but not perhaps including all of the detail and really pushing it out into the future to be agreed in a in a future agreement. And as you said, it's really important then to be clear within those documents whether or not they are binding or whether they're subject to contract, uh, which is an indicator that the parties are not bound by those terms and that they'll agree a binding agreement at some point or at least they'll work towards agreeing a binding agreement at some point in the future. Now, I did want to note as well that it's possible in Australia to have letters of intent, MOUs or term sheets that are immediately legally binding, notwithstanding that the parties are also intending to document and execute their agreement in a more formal, more fulsome document at a later point in time, 
So that's one of the, the categories of sort of intermediate agreements that was recognised in the, the seminal case of Masters and Cameron, but it really turns on how you document it. So if you're going to be agreeing one of these types of agreements, it's best that you seek legal advice so that you can ensure that it's either binding or not, depending upon what outcome you actually want to achieve. Thanks, Nick. I would like to add here some comments from the Spanish perspective. And when I say Spanish perspective, this is because I'm not quite sure this may be the case for the rest of continental Europe. Letters of intent, memorandum of understanding, and equivalent documents are actually common in the Spanish market. But this is normally when you are in an international business context or in certain sectors, for example, financial sector or real estate, and so on. Nevertheless, they are not regulated in Spain in any detail. And furthermore, Spanish courts tend to take a hard line, so to speak, with them. If the parties have agreed a set of obligations in the form of a binding contract, this is enforceable. If they have not, this is probably, or at least Spanish courts so think, because the parties felt not yet ready, not yet prepared to become legally obliged. This means that all these so-called preparatory documents are normally held as non-binding by the Spanish courts. Quite interestingly, they take the example of the promise to get married. The promise to get married is, is an interesting legal figure in, in Spanish law because before the Spanish civil code was approved, it was binding and could be enforced by a court. If someone had promised to marry me, uh, the other party could take me to a court and get a court order so that the marriage was accomplished, so to speak. Well, civil court declared that this was no longer the case in Spain, but that in, in some extraordinary cases, if one of the parties had undertaken some expenses, these expenses could be somehow reinforced, but it was not enforceable. Well, the Spanish courts are applying the same principle to these preparatory documents, and therefore they normally rule that they are not binding and not enforceable. In the light of, of this case law, obviously, the good practice here in Spain, the Spanish market, is to include in the letters of intent and the memorandum of understanding a clause stating whether the document is binding or not, And if binding, whether the binding force covers all the clauses or just a few of them. Including these clauses is also advisable because in some occasions, Spanish courts have done the opposite. They have ruled that, well, at the end of the day, this letter of intent already included all the requirements that uh, the court would have expected in a, in a real contract and therefore have ruled that this was a real contract and fully enforceable, very much the shock of the parties. So what you normally do is either to get rid of these letters of, of intent because they, they do not provide any real commitment from any of the parties, or else to very carefully tailor the wording so that it is very clear whether their clauses or some of their clauses are binding and therefore enforceable or not. 
Thanks, Diego. I think it's really interesting to consider the different ways these topics are treated under different laws. And I'm sure you'll agree particularly relevant to our clients operating on a multi-jurisdictional basis. And so that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks to Diego and Nick for sharing their insights on strength of obligations with us today. And thanks to you for listening. Do look out for further episodes in the series and click subscribe to be the first to know as we release them. Thank you.